the Old Testament reading from Jeremiah 31, 31 through 34. Behold, the days, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, my covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after these days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them, and I will write it on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother, saying, Know the Lord. For they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity, and I will remember their sin no more. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of the Lord shall stand forever. Today is our last sermon in our series on holiness which we've titled Becoming Like Jesus, because after all, that's what holiness is all about. It's about Christ-likeness and becoming like our Lord. I hope that over the past few months, I've convinced you that holiness is essential to Christian living, that holiness is Christian living. And to avoid the common pitfalls of legalism, I've tried to stress that the context of holiness is our justification through Jesus Christ. God's command to be holy always, always stands on the shoulders of his declaration that we are already holy in Christ. And that frees us to live for God without paralyzing fear because we're assured of his love and we're assured that the grounds of our acceptance with God is not our performance but the finished work of Christ on Calvary. We have also discussed over the past few months how the biblical idea of holiness places us in opposition to the world and worldliness. And this is pertinent for us as we grapple with life in a post-Christian society, which of course places freedom to do whatever one wants as the highest moral good. And so holiness is a timely rebuke to that. All around us, churches are capitulating to the culture. Things that the people of God, not just Christians, but God's chosen people, Israel, in ancient times, always understood to be abominable in God's sight for millennia, are now accepted because it's, well, culturally expedient. And those who resist our modern conceptions of what is okay or permissible are paying the price. And that's not hyperbole. We've talked about 
the role of the conscience as the soul's warning system, and how shutting it off has dire consequences. We've seen how the experience of holiness is one of conflict. We've discussed the desires of the flesh are against the desires of the spirit, and this conflict, no matter how long we live, never fully goes away. We've explored some of the virtues and vices that serve as guardrails to holy living, holy habits to live into, and sinful habits to avoid. And finally, last week we wrapped up declaring that it's the Holy Spirit who is the agent of holiness. In other words, the main task of the Holy Spirit is to produce holiness in believers. And there are three things associated with the Holy Spirit's work in us. Humility, activity, and change. Briefly, holy humility is a kind of self-distrust we have or a self-suspicion that has no confidence in the flesh. It brings us low before God. We can never rejoice in a sort of holy pride because sin is always one step away from us. So we bring ourselves low before a holy God. And as John Bunyan once said, he that is low need fear no fall. Secondly, the Holy Spirit works in us to create a kind of holy activity the outworking of the Spirit's inner renewal, laboring in us to pursue holy habits in every area of life. Holy activity is simply the cycle of praying for God's help, expecting God's help, and repenting when we fail. We talked about the gospel waltz, the dance that we do of repenting and believing and obeying. Repenting, believing, and obeying. This cycle, this sort of dance, this three-movement dance that we are always in as Christians. And then finally, holy change, which means our daily mortifying or crucifying or killing our sins as we grow into an ever-fuller Christ-likeness. As we bear the fruit of the Spirit, our whole person changes from the inside out into the image of Jesus' humility and love. Humility, activity, and change. And this is how the Spirit sanctifies us. It works in us what God knows we need to do what God wants. As St. Augustine once said, God grants what he commands. He commands us to be holy, and God grants the ability through his spirit to do that. And so it is a kind of holiness by grace, not by effort alone, not by performance or measuring up where we just try harder and pick, us, pick ourselves up by our bootstraps, but it is the acknowledgement that God has equipped us and sent an agent of holiness, his Holy Spirit. 
Today is our final sermon on the Holy Spirit as the agent of holiness from the book of Romans, starting in chapter 8, verses 1 through 8. And it reads, There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus for the law of the Spirit of life, has set you free in Jesus Christ from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law weakened by the flesh could not do, by sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh, and for sin he condemns sin in the flesh, in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us, who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit." For those who live according to the Spirit set their mind on the things of the flesh. Excuse me. For those who live according to the flesh set their mind on the things of the flesh, but those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. For to set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the Spirit is life and peace. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot, for those who are in the flesh cannot please God. Father, thanks for your grace, for your spirit, and for the illumination of Holy Scripture to transform us, change us, convict our hearts, and help us to learn the truth. We pray, O God, that you would convict us and convince us now Change us that we might leave this place differently than the one we came in. In the strong name of your son, Jesus, amen. Well, as we went through the book of Romans last year, we talked about how Romans 8 has been called the inner cathedral of the Christian faith. The tree of life in the midst of the Garden of Eden, the highest peak in a range of mountains. And it is a powerful portrayal of what it means to be a Christian. What we just read in Romans chapter 8, verses 1 through 8, and the rest of the chapter, is the stunning implication of the gospel and has to be understood against Paul's previous statement in chapter 7. Some of you are familiar with Paul's Statement in chapter 7, when I want to do good, I cannot. Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? It's in that context that Romans 8 follows. The realization that without something from outside of us helping us, the situation is hopeless. But the answer Paul gives after the sort of cliffhanger of chapter 7 is there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. That verse is the summary of the gospel. If someone asks you why you're a Christian, that's your answer. There's no condemnation in Christ. 
That is the most succinct definition of the gospel. No condemnation. That's why I'm a Christian. And it's a discipline that we have to keep before us, isn't it? To remind ourselves when the guilt of past sins bubble up in our minds and in our hearts and in our memory, we have to hear these words afresh. No condemnation. When you feel the burning shame and guilt of your sins and are brought down to hell, these words lift you up to heaven. No condemnation. It means that there will never be a time when we come face to face with God and he says, I forgave you for these sins, but not this one. That'll never happen. The gospel means that that will never happen because of the universal promise, the absolute promise, the all-embracing promise, no condemnation. And some of us need to hear that again and again. There are some here and some watching online who have done things, unspeakable things, intentionally or unintentionally. Sometimes we do things we don't mean to do. A coworker, my brother-in-law in California on the way home from the gym one night was not paying attention and hit and killed a cyclist in the dark. It was an accident. I don't know if he was text messaging or not, but we saw how the guilt racked him, crushed him, debilitated him. It's manslaughter. It's a horrible thing. It was unintentional. Some of us have done things intentional and unintentional that we struggle to cope with, to live with, to forgive ourselves for. And for those that feel that way, you need to hear this again and again, that in Christ alone, who offered himself as an atoning sacrifice, in taking your place and the punishment that you deserve for your sins, that in Christ there is no condemnation. There is no condemnation. We tend to go back and forth between two extremes. One is the inability to believe the gospel to really believe that God can forgive us. The other is to think, the other extreme, is that there is nothing we need to be forgiven for. Both are wrong. Both are wrong. The gospel says you are guilty. You've sinned against God and your neighbor. But in Jesus Christ, there's no condemnation. Maybe you don't need to hear it, but someone in your life needs to hear it from your lips. That word here in Scripture, in the original language, katakrina, means judicial pronouncement upon a guilty person, punishment, penalty. 
No condemnation is a declaration about future judgment in the present. That God looks forward to the time of judgment and makes a statement in the present about what will happen in the future to you. There will be no condemnation on that day for you. No condemnation on that day for you because of Jesus. God doesn't condemn us now, nor will he in the future because we are delivered from the fear of punishment and the slavery of guilt. As it says in verse 2, for the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. You have to understand why this was such a big deal for Paul, the apostle, the Pharisee. Such a big deal for him, who felt the power of the gospel acutely as a person who spent his whole life learning the law and trying to keep the law. He was an inside man. And you know, if you're an insider, you understand things in a way that others don't. He was an insider to the law. The Gentiles didn't know exactly what Jewish people like him, especially Pharisees who spent their whole life studying the law of Moses, struggled with. And he saw firsthand what trying to measure up to God's holy, perfect, righteous standard did to people. Instead of producing the life and happiness it was meant to, because that's what the law was meant to do, It was meant to sort of put a pep in your step because God's laws are good. They're not bad. They keep and protect us from disaster and danger, right? Speed limits saying you cannot go 120 miles an hour in a residential neighborhood shouldn't feel oppressive because it saves your life and the life of others and God's law works that way as well. It is meant for our good, but the flesh is like a heavy foot unable to take its, you know, your shoe off of the gas. That's how the flesh is. A car is a good thing, but if you have somebody who is a reckless driver and can't help it, it's a dangerous, terrible thing. And the law was like that. The law was good, but the flesh was reckless. The flesh is reckless. Instead of producing life and happiness, the law produced Death and misery because the flesh is so weak. You remember Jesus' words that the spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. The flesh is weak. And instead of finding joy in his piety, he found himself imprisoned by it. Because a person's whole record of good, righteous law-keeping crumbled in one act of disobedience. Crumbled in one act of disobedience. Like a handwritten letter by pen that looks pristine and immaculate until you misspell a word, have a typo, and have to scratch a word out. And you crumble the whole thing up and have to throw it away. I've done that so many times. The law was like that. It's good as long as you're doing it right, but the first time you mess up, their whole record of righteous law-keeping crumbles. 
Just like the Garden of Eden, the fellowship that Adam and Eve had, the perfect fellowship with God, the ecstasy of talking with God every day in the cool of the day, having fellowship with him in the garden, no alienation, no shame, no guilt, for who knows how long up until that moment that they ate of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. That act of betrayal shattered the fellowship that they had with God for who knows how long. That is the thought world that Paul writes these words into. In the gospel, God conquers the flesh. He conquers sin in the flesh, not ours, but Christ's. Verse 3, for God has done what the law weakened by the flesh could not do by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin he condemned sin in the flesh there's no condemnation not because God lowered the standard but because Jesus Christ in human flesh meets and exceeds the standard for us Sin is in no place any longer to condemn us because sin itself has been condemned, like a dilapidated building endangering its inhabitants until a city inspector comes out and condemns the building, ending its ability to threaten its occupants forever. That's what Paul is saying. Sin can no longer threaten us because sin itself has been condemned. Because in the likeness of sinful flesh, Jesus condemned it. It's a complex argument. I hope I've made it clear. I tried. What Paul writes is not always easy to understand. But hopefully you get the idea. He condemns sin in the flesh, verse 4, in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh but according to the Spirit. Well, that's weird, Paul, that what someone else did fulfilled God's righteous requirement of obedience and holiness in us who didn't do it? Someone else did it? Yes, my son Jesus did it for you. And by placing faith and trust in Jesus, his righteousness is your righteousness. Get it? Wow. That's gracious. It is. So you mean that what Jesus did in his flesh his perfect record of absolute holy righteousness. As the only person who ever did it, if I believe in him and place my faith in him, my trust in him, that somehow that's applied to me? Yes, yes. 
The Spirit dwelling in us imputes the righteousness of Christ to us. The righteousness of Christ imputed to us by God's Spirit. And the indwelling Spirit has placed God's ownership on us and now helps us walk in God's ways. That's amazing and fantastic. That through God's Spirit, He does all of this. This is why we're ending our series on holiness talking about the Holy Spirit as the Spirit of life. We cannot be lost because of this. God has placed His seal of ownership and approval on us through the Spirit. We cannot be lost. We do not have to live in fear every moment that our salvation is slipping away from us because of our remaining indwelling sin. Through the Holy Spirit, our mind is set on the things of God more and more every day. And you know this from your own experience, don't you? That more and more every day you grow a little bit more like God. A little bit more you draw closer to him. And sometimes you have setbacks. It's like a good stock. It grows. Sometimes there are setbacks. But the Spirit has made its claim on us. Ephesians 1.14 says the Holy Spirit is the down payment on our inheritance which is applied toward our redemption on God's own people, as God's own people, resulting in the honor of God's glory. God names us as his, we cannot be lost. There is no condemnation now or in the future. We are safe and we are saved. Amen. Hallelujah. James Dunn says that the spirit defeats Sin and death and rehabilitates the law. God's rules are still there. The law is still there. But it's rehabilitated towards us. It no longer has the power to condemn and destroy us and sink us down in guilt. It now helps us. We want to do what God commands. We're free to keep the law knowing that we're ultimately not judged on our ability to keep it, but Christ's. Now here's the main application, okay? Main application point. I want you to stare at this. God's commandment to be holy always stands on the shoulders of his declaration that we already are holy in Christ through the Spirit. God's commandment to be holy always stands on the shoulders of his declaration that we already are holy in Christ through the Spirit. We have been declared holy, and then God commands us to pursue holiness in our daily lives and activity. Jesus said essentially the same thing, to take up your cross every day and deny yourself, to live into the holiness that has been named over you by God in the Spirit. So in conclusion, here's a few key takeaways as we end this series, okay? Holiness means 
Christ-centeredness as one's way of life. Holiness means law-keeping as one's way of love. Holiness means experiencing the baptismal pattern as one's life of faith. So number one, holiness means Christ-centeredness as one's way of life. J.I. Packer said, the Holy Spirit's new covenant ministry in all its distinctive aspects is essentially to glorify Christ to us and in us and through us and cause us consciously to live in and from our relationship to him as Savior, Lord, and God. In other words, pursuing holiness is about glorifying Jesus Christ. Secondly, holiness means law-keeping as one's way of love. The holy person knows that they've been loved and in turn loves God and their neighbor And that love finds its expression by keeping God's commands. And third, holiness means experiencing the baptismal pattern as one's life of faith, which means that the dying to the old life and resurrection to the new life, which baptism represents, is the pattern of holy living as we daily die to our lusts and appetites, and live into our new creation identity, risen with Christ. In closing, I leave you with Paul's words from 2 Corinthians 4.10. That we ought to always carry in the body the death of Jesus, so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our bodies. Let's pray. Father, we pray, O God, that our discussion, our talk, our preaching and teaching and lessons on holiness would not be in vain. That we would see the relevance and importance and imperative of resisting worldliness, resisting the culture. Each day, some new wicked invention is revealed in our society and sold to us as normal. And something in us knows this is not normal. Our hearts sink deep down in us as we witness our society tearing itself apart. We often wonder if we're the only ones that feel it. But Lord, just as in the days of Elijah, you always reserve a remnant who has not bowed the knee to Baal. Reserve us, O God, and preserve us and cause us to persevere as your remnant who will not bow the knee to the culture, to the world, to the idolatry around us, but only to Christ who is Lord and Savior. Let our tongues confess the Lordship of Jesus and give us the strength to bear up every reproach for the name of Christ with courage and conviction. We pray these things in his name, amen.